I thus address the world through the medium of the latest wonderful invention so that my voice, like my great show, will reach future generations and be heard centuries after I have joined the great and, as I believe, happy majority. Welcome to Becoming Barnum, the journey to fame and fortune, a podcast presented by the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport, Connecticut. The Barnum Museum has a unique treasure in its collection, a 750-page copybook of letters written by Phineas Taylor Barnum when he was traveling in Europe in the 1840s, introducing his young protege, General Tom Thumb, to millions of ordinary people, as well as royalty and high society. These letters offer a unique glimpse into the life of P.T. Barnum as a husband, father, mentor, and entrepreneur. Join us as we travel back in time and learn about the real person behind the legendary P.T. Barnum through his own words. If you enjoy this episode, we would appreciate it if you would subscribe to our podcast to help our rankings and support the Barnum Museum. And now, on with the show. Mademoiselle Venus. Among the special attractions P.T. Barnum purchased in Europe for his American Museum in New York was a lifelike figure made of wax, but this Parisian model was no ordinary wax figure. Barnum first mentions an interest in acquiring an anatomical Venus when he wrote to his museum manager Fortis Hitchcock on August 25, 1846, while he was in France acting as the advance man for the General Tom Thumb tour. He related that he hoped to get a Venus when he returned to Paris. Creating this specialized type of wax figure required a combination of high-level proficiency in sculpting and thorough knowledge of internal medial anatomy, since the purpose was to display realistic models of human organs in situ. The organs were thus arranged in a cavity within the wax figure's torso. For demonstration and teaching purposes, each organ could be lifted out and then put back in place. It goes without saying that the purchase of such a complex, multi-layered figure was a considerable investment, and would have to be commissioned. Whether American audiences would find the exhibition of an anatomical Venus morally acceptable or tasteful was a risk Barnum was willing to take. In late October of 1845, Barnum made a quick dash from Lyon to Paris, and apparently took the opportunity to see about getting a Venus. Barely containing his enthusiasm, he reported his triumph to Hitchcock in a letter of November 10th, exclaiming, I have also nearly engaged an anatomical Venus. The price was 4,500 francs. The man now offers to make it for 2,500, to be done in February or March. He could not resist mentioning it to his showman friend Moses Kimball in a letter the next day adding a phrase that indicates his awareness that the Venus would not be suitable for all audiences. I have also engaged an anatomical Venus for a separate room in my museum. While in Scotland in January of 1846, Barnum contacted his agent in Paris, Mr. Ouet, asking about the status of several projects and giving instructions about others. Since he anticipated that his Venus would be completed soon, he asked Uwe to be sure the people crating it packed it very carefully to prevent damage in the transatlantic shipment. Barnum's next letter to Fortis Hitchcock provides him with unpacking instructions as well as advice concerning the delicate issues of exhibiting a naked female form. 
Barnum's promotion of his museum's moral and wholesome exhibits and its suitability for women and children could be undermined in short order if any missteps were made with Mademoiselle Venus. Barnum began his letter to Hitchcock by telling him, I yesterday received a letter from Paris saying that my anatomical Venus would be ready on the 1st of February. I shall therefore write immediately to Messrs. Draper and Company Paris, asking them to ship it at once to New York. It will probably go by ship, which leaves Havre about the 10th to 16th of February, and will therefore reach you about the 1st of April, or a little before. The figure costs 2,500 francs, besides the packing and case, which will probably be 100 francs more. Also, of course, besides the expense of shipping. The Venus would cross the ocean in a sailing vessel rather than by steamship, which Barnum had mentioned previously was a risky proposition in winter. The issue of the duties imposed by U.S. Customs was one that continually irked Barnum. He was certain he had been significantly overcharged for other items he had sent to New York, and was determined in future to avoid the subjective judgment of authorities, believing they had wrongly applied excessive duties. He told Hitchcock, I shall have it directed to Dr. Tuttle, care of F. Hitchcock, American Museum, New York. I do this in order more surely to avoid paying duty. First, I think you could get it in duty-free as a statue, or as an object for the promotion of science and anatomical skill. But a physician may perhaps be more sure of getting it free from duty, hence directing it to Dr. Tuttle. He had other motives in employing this strategy as well. It was better to have a medical person associated with the Venus rather than a showman or museum manager, and a physician would likely be more adept at the actual unpacking and organizing of the parts. As Barnum explained to Hitchcock, It must be unpacked with the utmost nicety and care by Dr. Tuttle or some other medical man, and soft cushions covered over with clean sheets or something of the sort must be ready to lay the different parts of the figure upon, for being wax, it is liable to broken, and especially liable to get dirty, a thing to be most particularly avoided. All the different pieces which come apart are mounted with little ribbons to lift them off by, and thus save handling the wax. Still, these must only be touched by clean hands, and by a person who understands it, a surgeon or physician, or an intelligent student of medicine. His next instructions concern how and where the Venus should be exhibited, noting to Hitchcock, when you once have Mademoiselle Venus put together and laid upon her back, the position in which she is exhibited, you can judge whether it is best first to open the exhibition in some small and respectable saloon in Broadway or not. Furthermore, he continued, The figure must rest on an elegant couch, made of such a height, say two feet, and placed in a position of the room as will allow as many persons as possible to stand around and see it taken to pieces and explained. A small stand will stand near the couch on which the exhibitor will lay the pieces as he takes them out. Every portion from the brain to the foot is laid bare and dissected. A fetus of several months, three I believe, is contained in it. Though Barnum had mentioned to Moses Kimball that the Venus was to be displayed in his museum apart from other exhibits in a separate room, he was now thinking it should go to an entirely different location, at least to start off. As he had learned from a man in England who'd somehow been connected to a Venus exhibit, the figure should first be a standalone exhibition. He explained the idea to Hitchcock, writing, If properly managed, I think that one or two months' exhibition in a room on Broadway or elsewhere would be best, but of that you must judge. If opened first in a room and puffed strong, it would be sure to pay well, 
and would make it all the more popular at the museum afterwards, I think. Barnum was inclined to think that his anatomical Venus would be the first shown in America, and so it was important to promote and present it with the right tone, nothing bawdy or off-color. The same man in England had strongly advised choosing someone of good character to present the wax figure to the public. That person would be critical to its success, especially in regard to female audiences. In the first place, the advertising must be such that women would feel confident in the educational legitimacy of the exhibit and want to see it. But it would be folly to damage that credibility and risk offending women's sensibilities or embarrass them with a male presenter whose manner was crude, offhand, or ignorant. Therefore, Hitchcock must be very particular in hiring just the right person. Barnum advised, In London, many, many ladies went to see it, and will in New York, too, but on that account, it is necessary for it to be advertised that a medical gentleman exhibits and explains the anatomy, and he must be a sedate, respectable-looking, and intelligent man. Dr. Tuttle or Burns can find you such a man. Emphasizing this point again later in the letter, he told Hitchcock, The man in England says that its whole success depends on having the proper person to exhibit it, and that the idea of vulgarity, or of exhibiting it for any except a strictly scientific object, must never be tolerated. It is an object of science, revealing the wonders of the human anatomy. He says no more interesting exhibition can possibly be conceived, and therefore if we stick to its legitimate sphere, it must succeed. But he says if we do not have a medical man, we must have one who most thoroughly appears as such, and the public must believe him to be such. Dr. Tuttle, he added, could learn all the technical terms necessary to any person in two days. So if a medical man costs too much, get another, but let him be genteel, sedate, and intelligent. Barnum also suggested setting aside special viewing hours for women to protect them from possible embarrassment caused by male visitors or by the reveal of certain parts. In England, it was open from 10 to 1 for gentlemen, and from 1 to 3 for ladies, and from 3 to 10 p.m. for gentlemen. Barnum advised that when the Venus was moved to the American Museum for display, it should be placed in a small, neat apartment in the museum, where 12 or 25 cents extra is to be charged, and where it can be exhibited at all hours of the day and evening. And every hour or two, 30 minutes must be set apart for ladies. In fact, ladies can go in any time when the room is not occupied by men. In case Hitchcock was wondering just how accurate this Venus was, Barnum delicately phrased his comment on the matter, noting, The figure is perfect in all its parts, and therefore a nice silk bandage two inches wide is necessary to pass around the body below the navel, and then pass down covering the crotch. This bandage can be so arranged as to be slightly and carelessly removed as if by accident, or at the request of the company when no females are present. He expected the chosen space to accommodate no more than 30 people at a time. This would enable all present to view the figure and see the demonstration, noting, A small, neat room that will hold that number is sufficiently large, for the Venus can all be taken apart, explained, and put together in 10 minutes, and therefore any quantity of persons who may apply can soon be accommodated. And Barnum did expect to have people waiting in line. The man in England had assured him that their Venus cleared 8,000 pounds in just three and a half years, a sum that Barnum accurately converted to 40,000 U.S. dollars. Barnum calculated the average to be about $60 per day with a 25-cent admission, and the man had told him that he'd taken in as much as $300 per day. 
Barnum planned to charge 12 or 25 cents on top of his regular 25-cent museum admission, and assuming that many people would come to the museum specifically to see the Venus and not otherwise, his profits could rise well above those of the English Venus exhibit. As you've been listening to this, it may have brought to mind the very popular traveling exhibitions of the 1990s and early 2000s called Body World and Bodies the Exhibition. Curiosity about the inner workings of our bodies has existed for centuries, and people are no different in that regard today, including in their visceral reaction to realistic models as either breathtaking or revolting. Barnum, of course, wanted his visitors to be so awestruck and captivated by the Venus that word of mouth would bring people to his museum. So it is notable that he ordered the figure in Paris and not England, where anatomical wax modeling at that time was not concerned with artistic elegance, and models resembled cadavers. Though Barnum's letters do not say who was making his Venus, Parisian wax workshops were becoming highly proficient in the 19th century, and it sounds as if his Venus was to be modeled in imitation of the exquisite figures produced by the leading workshops of 18th century Florence, Italy. Among the finest early sculptors of anatomical wax models, Italians Felice Fontana and Clemente Sussini were famous for their exceptional artistry, combining expressive beauty and harmonious coloring with realism and accuracy. I imagine Barnum would have liked nothing better than to have a copy of Sussini's Veneria, Little Venus, at his museum, and his plan to bring Mademoiselle Venus to America would nicely fill the bill. We hope you're enjoying the episode. If you want to support us, consider subscribing to our podcast and leaving us a review. It really helps us out. Now, let's dive into the next segment, Averting a Lawsuit. Late February of 1846 was proving to be a difficult time for P.T. Barnum, as a group of uncharacteristically short letters reveals. An accident had occurred at the theater in Airdrie, Scotland, a small town 12 miles east of Glasgow, where General Tom Thumb had performed on Monday, February 16th. Several people had been injured, some seriously, including one of the general's entourage. Thinking back to the main dangers in theaters of past centuries, fire was an all-too-common reality. But the accident in Airdrie was a different sort. The floor had given way. Barnum was, needless to say, greatly relieved that his protege had not been hurt, though the incident surely must have terrified everyone present. As is often the case with Barnum's letters, his relating of an incident or situation is not necessarily consistent from one letter to the next, and in this case, he tells one correspondent that none of his party was hurt, while in another letter he writes that one of his people was severely injured. In any case, the essential story is present and it is clear that Barnum was quite rattled by the accident, especially as it occurred when he was already feeling quite burdened with family and financial worries. Having to sort out this calamity, just as he was wrapping up the tour in Scotland, was a particularly unwelcome task. We first learn of the accident in a letter to a Mr. Sheffield, written in Paisley, and dated February 19th, three days after the incident occurred. In it, Barnum said the entourage would dash on according to your arrangements and be in Rugby, England on time. And he followed this with a few brief lines that reveal why their schedule had been in question. The floor broke through at Airdrie. One arm and one leg broke and 39 more injured. It will cost us a few hundred pounds, probably. 
it was not at the courthouse, but at the theater which I engaged for these sixpence fellows. None of us were hurt. Then he added, We have done miserable business lately, and listed their meager take from performances in Paisley, Greenock, Glasgow, and Airdrie, ranging from 20 pounds to 41 pounds. Barnum's next letter sought legal advice from solicitor Mr. Moncrief, a partner in the long-standing Glasgow firm Moncrief, Patterson, Forbes, and Barr. Barnum informed Moncrief that the bearers of his letter were gentlemen from Airdrie, who would tell him about the accident, and he asked that Moncrief oblige the father of General Tom Thumb and myself by listening to them and advising us what you think would be just or honorable in the matter. On Sunday, February 22nd, Barnum's group departed Paisley and reached the town of Dumfries that evening. Barnum sat down to respond to the advice he had received from the solicitor and affirm his willingness to act upon it. He also wrote to the proprietor of the Royal Hotel Airdrie, asking for his assistance in locating the men who had spoken with him in Paisley. He explained, Two gentlemen from Airdrie called on us yesterday at Paisley to know whether General Tom Thumb would feel inclined to give anything toward relieving some of the most needy sufferers by the late accident. Since he did not know their names, he asked if the hotel proprietor could let the men know of his intent. He stated plainly, I am now directed by General Tom Thumb to say that he will tomorrow send 20 pounds to the Chief Magistrate of Airdrie, which sum he wishes the magistrate to distribute according to his own discretion among those sufferers who most need pecuniary aid. The next short letters address the mechanics of getting the 20 pound sum to the Chief Magistrate. Barnum found he could not get a post office order and had to ask the postmaster to be responsible for delivering the banknote. A letter addressed to the chief magistrate himself informed him of the purpose of the forthcoming money and the hope that the most needy sufferers of the accident would be the beneficiaries. Aside from the solicitor's counsel to offer compensation to the injured, Barnum himself must have realized these were people who, for the most part, barely earned enough to get by, much less pay for a doctor's care, and if their injuries prevented them from working for a time, a whole family might starve. 19th century Airdrie was, after all, an industrial town of coal miners and cotton mill workers, many of whom moved there in the mid-1840s to seek non-agrarian employment as the Scottish Highlands potato famine decimated their life-sustaining crop. Providing restitution to the injured was a sticky situation, and as far as Barnum was concerned, the quicker things could be settled, the better, so he could finish the tour and get back to London. The manner in which the unfortunate accident was handled could hardly be more different than today, when liability insurance and potentially protracted litigation would shape the outcomes. Barnum and others in his day had a lot to fear from lawsuits. Upon reaching Penrith, England, Barnum received a letter from the chief magistrate, John Davidson Esquire, though it was not what he had hoped to hear. Davidson's letter had been forwarded to him from Glasgow, which tells us it was written before he had received Barnum's communication about the 20-pound donation. The accusatory tone of Davidson's letter is apparent in Barnum's response, which begins with courteous and deferential language, explaining that General Tom Thumb had sent 20 pounds via the postmaster. By the third paragraph, however, he holds nothing back in conveying his indignation at the accusations. He began calmly enough, writing, I hope that the remittance may prove satisfactory, though I cannot refrain from saying that I hardly think it would have been sent if your letter had been received in advance, for it would then have looked, considering the indirect threat contained in your letter, as if fear and not charity prompted the act on the part of the general. 
With escalating anger, he went on. Now, I have to say, by order of the father of General Tom Thumb, that the former feeling never has nor never will enter into his brain nor heart regarding this transaction. And much as he should feel annoyed at litigation in this country, yet he would not give the millionth part of a farthing to avoid such an event in this case. The wholesale stories that have been got up about our being cautioned that the room was weak and would hold but a few hundred persons, that there was danger if too many were admitted, etc., is a tissue of the most palpable and ridiculous falsehoods ever concocted by selfish man, and such will they be proved to be if any men or their agent hope to extort money from the really injured party. Further, he argued, who would be fool enough to believe that Mr. Stratton would have risked the life of his son, and that we would all have risked our lives in a hall regarding the safety of which we had heard the least whisper or hint? The supposition is preposterous. From this point to the end of the three-and-a-half-page letter, Barnum built his case, and we get a better picture of the contentious situation in which neither he nor the theater owner would admit bearing responsibility for the accident. As Barnum tells it, The truth was, we were assured in advance by the proprietor that the hall had held 1,000 persons at a time, and could do so again, and it was repeatedly stated to him that our object in getting the hall was to get in more people than the other hall could possibly hold, and that we wished the people to be packed as thick as they could stand. This he agreed to, and assured us that we could get in 1,000 persons. Barnum had revealed in his letter to Mr. Sheffield that he had previously engaged the large theater in Airdrie rather than the hall, so as to attract the sixpence fellows, presumably meaning working people who could afford a sixpence admission, but would find the usual shilling too steep. Barnum would have calculated that in order to offset the bargain price, he needed to attract a very large crowd. But the letter to Davidson claims there were far less than 1,000 in the theater at the time of the accident, and that a portion of the floor, not the entire floor, broke under the weight of a relatively small number, and therefore he should not be blamed. He laid it out to Davidson thusly. Now, what was the fact? The weight of from 100 to 150 persons broke down the floor, for the remaining 500 persons escaped, and they did not affect that portion of the floor which gave way. By the merciful providence of God, General Tom Thumb escaped, for had the accident occurred two minutes sooner, there are 99 chances in 100 that he would have been killed. We were constantly urging the audience to approach the table where the general was exhibiting, to get as near to them as they could, etc. Should we have encouraged this extra weight to concentrate about him, had we ever received the remotest hint that the floor would not have sustained as many as could have stood on it? At the time of the accident, there was standing room for several hundred more persons, and we should have packed that number in during the next few minutes, had not the accident occurred. And of course, we should have done this without the suspicion of danger, for no man is fool enough to believe we would have knowingly endangered our lives and the life of the general, and we should have been doing it knowingly, if, as has been asserted, we had received the shadow of a caution about limiting the number of the audiences. Barnum again emphasized that Mr. Stratton hopes you are all satisfied with what he has done, and will drop the thought of a lawsuit. But if such is not the case, he begs me to say that his attorneys are Messrs. Moncrief, Patterson, and Forbes of Glasgow, and that he stands ready by their advice to resist any attempt of any person or persons to extort money from him on account of the late accident. Barnum was undoubtedly voicing his own opinions on the matter, though he signed all of these letters as P.T. Barnum, Secretary to General Tom Thumb. 
The tact was similar to his identifying himself to French officials as General Tom Thumb's agent rather than as his manager or the business partner of the boy's father. Barnum closed his letter to Davidson by offering sympathy to those who suffered bodily injury, while also making the point that one of our party was seriously injured, though he did not elaborate on the extent of the injuries. His next point raises an interesting question of liability. Barnum stated to Davidson that had General Tom Thumb lost life or limb by the calamity, there is no question that Mr. Russell should have been liable to damages, which suggests that it was customary for a proprietor's liability to extend only to the performers and accompanying individuals, not the theater patrons. Claiming there were other grounds to sue Russell, Barnum added, At present, he may thank his good fortune and the dissuasions of Mr. Stratton and myself if the man in our company who was so seriously injured does not institute proceedings against him for damages. At that time, there was no liability insurance, so neither Barnum nor the theater owner were protected from the cost of a legal judgment against them. In England, liability insurance, first known as employer's insurance, only came about after the passage of the Employer's Liability Act in 1880. Stateside, liability insurance emerged a few years later. Industry-specific insurance products soon followed, and by 1915, liability coverage for theaters was among them. For the town of Airdrie, the floor collapse was the most minor of many accidents that would occur there in 1846. In August and December, there were fatal explosions in the mines, and between those months, several other mine-related accidents resulted in the tragic deaths of individuals. Nearly a week after the spate of accident letters, and having at that point returned to London, Barnum wrote one of his usual long epistles to Fortis Hitchcock at the American Museum, though he refrained from sharing the whole story. Near the end of his March 1st letter, he mentioned the accident just briefly, relating to his museum manager that, We had a sad accident near Glasgow. The floor broke through, wounding 41 persons, breaking arms and legs, etc., the authorities threatened to prosecute us for damages, and therefore I send you no money this time. I have only $1,500, £300, and may want all of that to fight these devils in Scotland. However, I guess not. If anything transpires before the third, I shall drop you another letter. If not, not. The aftermath of the accident was a humbling experience for Barnum, perhaps shaking his confidence that he could work things out on his terms or even that an unfortunate accident would be handled fairly by the parties involved. But he faced these troubles squarely, as he would do again in the future when his museums and circus winter quarters were consumed by fires. In our next episode, we will see how Barnum was coping with an array of stressful situations he described in letters to close friends, and learn about his food preferences and his comparison of English and American cuisines. Thank you for listening to this episode of Becoming Barnum, The Journey to Fame and Fortune. Support for this episode is provided by the City of Bridgeport American Rescue Plan Act Funds, Peoples United, a division of M&T Bank, and the Connecticut Humanities and National Endowment for the Humanities. The podcast was produced by the Barnum Museum and based on the blog series Barnum's Letters from Abroad by Adrian St. Pierre. Editing and sound design are by Rui Pinna, and narration is by William Saris. Kathleen Marr is our executive director, and John Swing is our COO. If you enjoyed this episode, 
Please subscribe to the podcast and visit our YouTube channel for behind-the-scenes presentations of our collections and more stories about the legendary showman. Connect with us on social media and let us know what you think. Please tune in next time as we continue our adventures with P.T. Barnum.